0: Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 30th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 1 to 35. Ezekiel's vision comes to a grand conclusion and climax as he hears the remaining division of the land and the name of the city. The Lord is there. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Filipek. Pastor Philippeck serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippeck, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Thanks, it's good to be with you, and greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord, and Savior Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come.
0: Pastor Philipek, I've been sharing this quote from Dr. Hummel in his commentary concerning this last section of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48. And based on conversations that you and I have already had, I think you'll probably agree with what Dr. Hummel says. He says, from almost any perspective, these chapters are among the most formidable and challenging in the entire Bible. And and now having read through all of them, except chapter 48 here on Sharper Iron, I, I can see why he says that it's a difficult section. So as we prepare to look at chapter 48 today, what do we need to know? How are we going to approach this text so that we can make good Christian use of it, even though it's difficult and formidable?
1: Yeah, I do think it is a bit difficult uh, for Christians to study because Ezekiel 48 not only combines the complexities of of a vision, but it also has the complexities of a typical thing that you might end up with in Genesis, which is a bunch of names and numbers and people and all of those things. So Ezekiel 48, we we get it, we get that all. We get a bunch of land divisions, we talk about a bunch of numbers, we talk about a bunch of sections of land and how to divide things in this way and that much, and people's eyes, when they read this in scripture, I would imagine sort of glaze over and you kind of just are tempted to say, I I don't know, this is all kind of boring. It's not intelligible. Let's, Let's just skip it and move on. But to do that with anything, genealogically, land divisions, anything like that, to do that, we would be remiss. Because this chapter, the whole conversation technically began back in Ezekiel 47, this chapter amidst a bunch of names and land divisions, there's actually something very valuable for us as Christians to learn about the kingdom of God with respect to unity and equality. Now, I'm not going to give it all away today, right now, right here, but I will unpack a little bit more that we would need to understand more about the kingdom of God in Ezekiel 48 with respect to unity and equality. To do that, I sort of need to go back to the background of Joshua 14 and 21, where we first had a land division. After Israel had been led through the Red Sea, after they'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, after they thought fought 13 battles in the promised land, the first of which the hearers might remember, just kind of trigger that memory as Jericho. Well, then Israel began to branch out, right? They began to take possession of the land. And God instructed Each of the tribes, each of the twelve, to take possession of certain sections, and the allotment had a lot to do with what is the size of your tribe. If you have a little tribe, then you get a little bit of land, right? If you get, if you have a big tribe, you get a big piece of land. But what's more, as they begin to branch out, the Lord also instructs that they will not just be able to walk right into the land; they'll actually have to fight the current inhabitants of the land in order to take possession of their allotted section. So as they branch out then, Joshua warns them not to sin, not to worship false gods, choose whom this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? This is the whole context of, a Josh, of Joshua. But they like Adam, even though they promised all this we will do, we will obey the voice, Lord's voice. They like Adam before them actually don't. They fall into idolatry time and time again. And the warning about sin is that sin is a separate, separative and division-based consequence. I'll just say it that way, because when Adam sins, he's divided from God, he's divided from his wife. When Israel sins, they are divided from God, and they are divided from one another. And you see that then throughout Israel's history, in the 12 cycles of the judges, you see that Israel falls into idolatry, uh, the Lord sells them into slavery through punishment, they cry out in repentance, God raises up a judge, but it happens cyclically 12 times, so much so that the judges aren't really the answer to Israel's idolatry, they, they aren't, they're steeped in it, so in what does Israel get? Well, they get what they've kind of wanted here, which was a monarchy, even though the Lord warns them about the monarchy. Well, you get King Saul, the first king, then David, then Solomon. Each have their own sins, which time would fail us to just simply go and enumerate all of that history here today. But after the reign of Solomon, Israel then, with the reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam, splits into two kingdoms. Israel is divided because of Rehoboam's sins and Jeroboam's sins. Ten tribes end up in the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel. And two tribes end up in the Southern kingdom of Israel and the two tribes, the South that we've been focusing on here in Ezekiel and exile is really kind of known as Judah's kingdom. I mean, yeah, Benjamin and stuff like that, but Judah's the the big one down there. Judah's known that's that their kingdom. You've got, you know, the temple there and all of those sorts of sorts of things. Well, After then all the different history of the kings, you know, the northern kingdom really doesn't have a good king. Southern kingdom has a few good things, but Israel is actually, the northern kingdom is actually a lot more wicked than Judah because of it, right? They don't have too many good kings, and so they're destroyed. The Lord warned them about this, that they would be kicked out of the land if if they didn't obey his, all that he had commanded them. Assyria destroys them in 722 B.C., and a while later, Judah is taken into captivity there in 586 BC by Babylon. And this, the, you know, the Babylonian exiles, as a listeners full well know, like I just said, is sort of Ezekiel's study. It's a setting for Ezekiel. But with this in mind, we need to remember a key point here in Israel's history, because the northern kingdom of Israel actually divided themselves even further by betraying their southern brothers Um, during the assyrian conquest they side the north sort of sides with the enemies and the south and the north are completely divided and the south as a result has no love for their northern brothers they i don't they'd even call them brothers anymore and so in the minds of ezekiel's exiles and those who remained in the south the North is sort of not a thing, right? It's not an entity. It doesn't exist. They're nothing. They've been assumed by Israel. Good riddance to bad rubbish. Israel's gone forever. And if they knew that phrase, I'm sure they use it, right? Good riddance to bad rubbish. But, but uh, they, they probably didn't. But irrespective, you need to keep these points in mind because now we arrive back at a talk about the new promised land and a new division of land
0: all right so just to i think the two main points then are going to be the the division of the land as it happened under joshua and the way particularly one of the points we're going to talk about is how under joshua the size mattered based on the size of the tribe in general and then the great disunity that came about throughout the history of israel I mean, I know you, you went all the way back to Judges. There's a civil war during the Judges period as well. I mean, and then, of course, the, the splitting of the tribes and the, the enmity that existed between these brothers. Those are going to be important factors to keep in mind as we see Ezekiel's vision here of the land being divided. So Ezekiel 48, beginning in the first verse. And, and as you said, Pastor Philbeck, this really is continuing with what we heard in chapter 47 yesterday. So now to the text. These are the names of the tribes, beginning at the northern extreme beside the way of Hethlon to Lebo Hamath, as far as Hazarenon, which is on the northern border of Damascus over against Hamath, and extending from the east side to the west, Dan one portion, adjoining the territory of Dan from the east side to the west, Asher one portion, adjoining the territory of Asher from the east side to the west, Naphtali one portion. Adjoining the territory of Naphtali, from the east side to the west, Manasseh, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Manasseh, from the east side to the west, Ephraim, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Ephraim, from the east side to the west, Reuben, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Reuben, from the east side to the west, Judah, one portion. All right, we'll pause there and you kind of get a, a sense for the the language there. Over, I mean, very repetitive. We we've seen language like this in terms of the the repetition and things being the same in various parts of the temple. This is talking about the land and the division. So, bring that context to bear, Pastor Filipek, on what's Ezekiel seeing here.
1: Certainly. So you were right in boiling everything I said down into those two main points, because as we talked about previously. When God allots the land back in Joshua, he does so by tribal size, each having to war against and fight inhabitants in order to take possession of it. And there are inevitably distinctions that are made then between the north and the south, between the tribes that end up in all kinds of turmoil. Uh, The biggest, though, as I sort of mentioned, is that Judah is really the, the crown jewel of the south. This is Judah's kingdom. And since that is the case, you've also got the temple with God's presence located there. That's the old, that's what they're all familiar with up until the time of exiles. But now in the new promised land allotment, God obliterates these distinction. God begins assigning land, get this, to northern tribes that have not existed. He not just assigns to like Judah and Benjamin, the two remaining tribes of the south, with Solomon's son Rehoboam, you know, in Babylonian exile and all that sort of stuff. But even though Judah might think that those tribes have left in the north, God actually assigns land again to these tribes that had been scattered and divided and supposedly never to be brought back again. He gives them a gift. A gift that comes without con- conquest, a gift that comes without war, a gift to tribes that were considered non-entities. So we begin then by giving land like we did in Joshua to Dan, and then the order gets a little changed here from Joshua's day, and that, ha- that has some great importance and significance as we go along. But Dan gets, Asher gets, Nathalie, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Reuben, six tribes from the north are placed back in the northern allotment who had thought to be gone. And God says, no, they're not gone. They are my people. I will bring them back. I will continue to shepherd them. I will give them an inheritance. I will dwell with them. I will be their, pe- my. they will be my people and I will be their God. And Pastor Abel, that's huge because while Israel and Judah have, actually both been sinfully dividing themselves, one from another and one from God. God is now busy uniting them once again as one people, his people from all 12 tribes. He is drawing them together under the banner of his promise, under the banner of his grace, his mercy and his love. And perhaps I think most shocking in this section to the exiles, and this sort of proves a point, that God is allotting a final plot of land in the north to everybody that will remain forever. In the midst of this allotment, there is a seventh and final tribe that is incorporated into the north, and that's Judah. I mean, this would have been eye-raising and shocking because Judah's the queen of the south, the predominant. But now that's in the north. It would have given the exiles great pause and perhaps, like I said, even caused them to raise their eyebrow. But now at this point, God is actually emphasizing even to Judah that all his people are precious. All 12 tribes belong. All receive grace. All receive mercy. All get inheritance, even though none deserve it. And so he calls all tribes to repentance and faith and reception of his promise, and all tribes are being united together in the new allotment of land according to this promise.
0: Yeah, this Pastor Philippek, this, this reminds me of, of a previous section in Ezekiel. We, from Ezekiel 37, a lot of us, we really know well the vision of the dry bones that, that Ezekiel sees there. But the, the second part of that chapter Ezekiel is given what we called an action prophecy, where he is to take essentially two sticks, and on each stick he's to write something. On the first stick he is to write for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, and then on the second stick he is to write for Joseph. And all the house of Israel associated with him, and when the Lord, and then Ezekiel's to take these two, two sticks in his hand and hold them together in in one way or another. And when we talked about that text, we we debated as to whether or not that might be end to end, such that it's one long stick, or maybe Ezekiel's holding those two sticks in the in the shape of a cross together, which is my preference, but it's not maybe clear in the text. But the the point of that that prophecy that Ezekiel was given there was to to show the people exactly what you're talking about here the restoration of the two tribes, the reuniting of all of God's people together. And so it's, I mean, I, I love the way that you're describing this and, and the point that you're making, because I think it fits perfectly with what Ezekiel has has already prophesied to these people. And, and now they're given to see a, a fulfillment as a part of this vision that he's got here in chapter 48.
1: It is remarkable and breathtaking that while they have been busy dividing themselves one for, from another from their sin, God is busy uniting them. And not just uniting them under the banner of his promise, not just restoring them to how things were before all of the divisions of sin and the kingdom splits and the time of the judges and the warring, but more so how they were created originally to be. So this is even more than just a pre Promised Land, old Promised Land allotment of everything and promise. This is the way. God is busy actually restoring things in this chapter to how things are exactly so supposed to be and how were he created them to be. And it wasn't just simply also in unity. You'll also notice a repetition. One portion, one portion, one portion, one portion. So they not only share and are united together as one now, but they also share the same amount of inheritance. So God is not only drawing back all his people to himself and giving them an inheritance of land in his presence, but unlike before where the land was divided based upon size and based upon tribal size and other other things too, but tribal size was probably the biggest one I want to mention here. All of God's people now, every single one of the 12 gets a share in God's inheritance, his gifts, his mercy, his grace, and they all get one portion. It's all equally divided. None is before another. None isn't after another. All united, all equally sharing in God's grace and mercy and love and presence. This is one of the valuable things we learn about the kingdom of God from Ezekiel 48. And Pastor Abel, I, I think you see it a lot clearer even as well in other places of scripture, when our Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't want to get too far into today's study um, just yet, but when our Lord Jesus Christ comes in the flesh, he tells these marvelous parables that do exactly the same thing of Ezekiel, only not the future hope, but what's actually going on right now as Jesus is walking around upon the earth. so there's kind of a bridge here that we have today between Ezekiel Christ and then the end times that we'll get into later on but one of these one of these parables is the Luke 50 th- 15 we call it the parable of the prodigal son which prodigal of course is, is not like somehow lost son we usually think of it it's wasteful. The wasteful son who wishes his father dead, but that's actually not that's actually not the heart of this parable because the sons both come back, and really what's remarkable at that parable is the generous father. So I kind of call that thing the generous father, the parable of the generous father. But but anyway, in that yeah. in that parable, it's about the kingdom of God. And what is this? What does he do? Well, God welcomes a son who is wicked, who has squandered, um, who has wished his father dead, who has been steeped in sin and lost. And he comes and he runs and he welcomes this son, who does not deserve it, back into his arm, killing the fattened calf, putting the signet rings on him, and welcoming my son, who was lost, is found, was dead, is alive again. And there's just love, and there's mercy, and there's forgiveness, because this son, coming to his senses, realizes this, and longs to eat the pig's... Uh, the the pigs ate, so he comes back to his father's house, and the father receives him by his grace and mercy. And what is what is the, so we'll, we'll call that the northern kingdom. What does is, what is the oldest brother do? What does Judah do? Oh, I've been here forever, and you've never given me a fattened cat. You know, he refuses to, to come in and celebrate with his son who has lost. This son of yours, he even calls him. But the father won't let the old, youngest son, and he won't let the oldest son, He mercifully goes out, even the oldest son and says, son, all that I have is yours. Come rejoice with me. He invites his two divided sons to be united under the banner of his mercy, under the banner of his love.
0: That's a fantastic parable. Keep going, Pastor Philippe.
1: Sure. And then the other one that I had for you, because I said to, um, but I wanted to just give you a chance to jump in. I'm sure you will at the end. But uh, the second one here is Matthew 20. I think about that. Because you have this whole parable about the vineyard that needs to be worked. Matthew 21 to 16, right? And the master goes out and tries to find workers. And of course, beginning at uh, early part of the morning, he finds some. And then they begin to work in his vineyard. And at 9 a.m., he goes out and finds some more. And at noon, some more. And three more. Five more. And then the end of the day comes. And all workers stand before him, some who have been working all day and others at the very last hour and what does he do he gives them all an equal portion that causes them to grumble some of them and he says isn't this not what i get to do with my property my land you know i'm summarizing this so aren't his exact words but this is the summary of that and he actually talks about how this master desires to give generously to the laborers of the vineyard. And as you study that parable, you begin to realize that, that we're talking about those who come to faith in Christ. So whether you come to faith in Christ from the moment you are baptized as a little baby, or whether you come to faith in Christ and cling to him in the hour of your death, perhaps even saying something like this, we indeed justly, for we are receiving a due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Whether you've been a lifelong Christian or whether you've been a thief on the cross, there is no difference when it comes to inheritance in the kingdom of God. All receive the same Jesus. All receive the same forgiveness. All the same receive the same resurrection. To eternal life in God's presence. So this Ezekiel 48 actually connects beautifully with the reign of God in Jesus Christ, and what has come in Jesus Christ, and what will come.
0: And I I want to go to that what will come, because I I think, you know, the connections that you make to our Lord's parables, those two in particular are spot on with what we're seeing here in Ezekiel 48, And, and listening to you make those connections, where where my mind went was into the book of Revelation. And I know we're gonna make more connections with the Book of Revelation later on in this text, but I, I was reminded here of what happens in Revelation chapter seven, where Saint John hears the the numbering of the tribes. And and the point of connection I would make there is the twelve thousand from each of the twelve tribes. They're all there, and from each tribe there is the the exact same number so 12,000 over and over again from all of the 12 tribes, that that same idea, you know, one portion, one portion, one portion. And, and then the other thought that I had from Revelation 7, as that part of St. John's vision continues, after he hears the numbering of the, the tribes of Israel, then he looks and he sees that countless host. And and suddenly there's also people from every tribe, nation, and language. Now, and I again, this I don't know that, I mean, Ezekiel is seeing all this in very Old Testament terms, in you know, in his world. That's that's the way he's seeing this vision all along, and so he's not. And we'll talk about this more again. You know, he's not seeing everything that Saint John sees. Perhaps Saint John sees the fullness. But I, I love how the the progression works. I suppose that that what Ezekiel sees here in forty eight our Lord builds upon and expounds in his own ministry and his parables. And then as St. John sees the vision, he really sees the fullness that, you know, that has what Ezekiel has. And then he even expands it to all the nations, which, I mean, that's of course part of Jesus' own ministry as well. I just, I I love the progression that you get to see there.
1: Absolutely. And you're not wrong in the use of progression. That's exactly what it is. Uh, Ezekiel gets sort of a skeletal bare bone structure that this is the end And John gets a more full vision, a more full vision. And I'm going to say that word full again, as you did, because I want the hearers to hear in that, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And he, when he was high and lifted up, would draw all nations To himself. So this does extend and Israel becomes more than just a bloodline. It's everyone who calls upon the name of our Lord. It's, and we see glimpses of it, right? Rahab, she's incorporated into the bloodline, but she was not herself a Jew, but yet is in the genealogical descent and lineage of our Lord Jesus. And yet, so in all of these things, we do see glimpses of this, but the fullness does happen at Christ. And when Christ comes, this Picture gets so much brighter, so much wider, and so much glorious than even what we see in Ezekiel.
0: Yeah, it, it is a, it's going to be, and we're going to see this even more as the text continues as to, to how this vision of Ezekiel gets. A, it progresses into the fullness that we see in Jesus and then in the book of Revelation, all the connections that we get to make. And we're going to do more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are talking Ezekiel chapter 48 with pastor Adam Philipek. We will be right back. Please stick around. KFUO is a listener-supported radio ministry that needs your support to continue. When you partner with KFUO, you are proclaiming Christ worldwide. November 30th is Giving Tuesday, a day that encourages you to give back in whatever ways you can. Giving Tuesday presents a perfect time each year for you to support your favorite nonprofit organizations, including KFUO Radio. To give to KFUO, call 314-996-1518 or text KFUO to the number 41444 or give online at KFUO.org. welcome back to sharper iron it is tuesday november 30th we are studying ezekiel chapter 48 verses 1 to 35 with pastor adam filipek he serves at holy cross and emmanuel lutheran churches both in lidgerwood north dakota pastor filipek prior to the break we read verses 1 to 7 and began to talk about the division of the land that each tribe receives one portion it's an equal inheritance that the unity that had been broken by the people of israel the lord is restoring and we're going to keep hearing now about the division of the land and maybe just to to try to put a picture in our minds of what's going on here imagine the the land of israel so find a map of the land of israel maybe in your bible and imagine starting at the north and essentially what's happening is the land is being divided into horizontal strips starting at the north with dan and then moving south by verse 7, we've gotten to Judah. So we're maybe somewhere toward the middle of the land of Israel. But as you pointed out, it is, it's is—it's a little surprising that Judah gets grouped up here in the north. We're going to hear more tribes farther south as it goes, but there's this section in the middle. And that's what we're going to read about right now, this holy portion or holy contribution. And we've heard a little bit about this before, but we're going to get a chance to read more. So we're we're picking up in Ezekiel 48, now at verse 8. Adjoining the territory of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the portion which you shall set apart 25,000 cubits in breadth and in length equal to one of the tribal portions from the east side to the west with the sanctuary in the midst of it. The portion that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 20,000 in breadth. These shall be the allotments of the holy portion. The priest shall have an allotment measuring 25,000 cubits on the northern side. 10,000 cubits in breadth on the western side, 10,000 in breadth on the eastern side, and 25,000 in length on the southern side, with the sanctuary of the Lord in the midst of it. This shall be for the consecrated priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept my charge, who did not go astray when the people of Israel went astray, as the Levites did. And it shall be, and it shall belong to them as a special portion from the holy portion of the land, a most holy place adjoining the territory of the Levites. And alongside the territory of the priests, the Levites shall have an allotment of 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in breadth. The whole length shall be 25,000 cubits and the breadth 20,000. And they shall not sell or exchange any of it. They shall not alienate this choice portion of the land, for it is holy to the Lord. The remainder, 5,000 cubits in breadth and 25,000 in length, shall be for common use for the city, for dwellings and for open country. In the midst of it shall be the city, and these shall be its measurements, the north side 4,500 cubits, the south side 4,500, the east side 4,500, and the west side 4,500. And the city shall have open land, on the north 250 cubits, on the south 250, on the east 250, and on the west 250. The remainder of the length alongside the holy portion shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 to the west and it shall be alongside the holy portion. Its produce shall be food for the workers of the city, and the workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall till it. The whole portion that you shall set apart shall be 25,000 cubits square. That is the holy portion together with the property of the city. We'll pause there. That is a... It's a One thing that stands out, Pastor Philippe, is that after that, you know, adjoining the territory, one portion and so forth, suddenly we get a lot more measurements here for this holy portion, which includes the city, includes the the sanctuary, it includes allotments for the the Levites and for the priests. Help us into this section of the text.
1: Certainly. And before I do, just a reminder to our hearers, because I think the Zadok would come as a bit of a what? shock. Who is this again? Um, Because we get the Levites, you know, they're the keepers of of the holy things of God, the temple. But Zadok is is of of Kohen. He's a Kohathite, um, descendant of Eleazar, who is a son of Aaron. Um, He was a high priest of Israel during the reign of David and Solomon's time. So we're talking about high priests versus sort of regular servants and temple priests. And that's really the distinction there to just give you that in your mind of who these are. These are all the priests. That's just a way to say high priests and regular, all the priests, Zadach and Levi, all of them. So you do first get this holy contribution mentioned. Ezekiel's great at this in 40 through 48. He gives you a summary. He mentions something in one or two verses, and then he moves on. And then later he'll come back to it and he'll fill it in with a bunch of detail, kind of like, I guess, a a painter or a master artist, uh, which is not foreign to our Lord. I mean, this is kind of the way God does things in Genesis when he creates the heavens and the earth, day one, corresponds to day four, so on and so forth, right? So, So this is great order here. Things are being done orderly. We have a God of order, not a God of chaos. But this was first mentioned in 45, seven to eight. And so it has occurred before, but the holy contribution is just sort of an allotment or swath of land extending the whole breadth of Israel. And it corresponds to the series of allocations assigned to the tribes. So the holy contribution then, just simply put, is the land at the center of all other land allotments. It's the land, though, that is allocated, I don't know if you caught that in the text, For the Lord, right? This is for Yahweh. This land belongs to God. And this land then is the central gathering place. It's to be the central gathering place for God and his people. So at the center of the land, then there is the sanctuary, which we've talked a lot about in Ezekiel. And around the sanctuary are the people that God has appointed then to attend to the sanctuary or, or temple. As we go throughout, we'll see the, the temple there even further south. But it's still in the holy contribution. So they are the ones, the Levites are the ones, and the Zadok is the one who's, who's to give out. The priests are the ones who to, are now to give out the sacrifices. And I think that's important. I don't think I can emphasize, like I emphasize fullness, I don't think I can emphasize the word give out enough here because that's what we got in 45. They're the giver-outers of the sacrifices. Well, that was not always the case, right? It, it wasn't. They were the ones who were to make the sacrifice for sins daily and, and Yom Kippur once a year and, and all the sacrifices that surround them. The whole five different sacrifices in the appointed ways, many of them just dealing with sin themselves. But now they're the ones who get to give out. They don't offer the sacrifices in Ezekiel's vision of the temple. Um, no. They're the giver-outers, they're the distributors. And this has beautiful connection, again, to what we were talking about with Christ coming and the fullness of the picture opening up as to what this is all about. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So now Hebrews, when we're talking about this, actually speaks volumes to what Ezekiel is saying. You, we read this in the three year lectionary a couple weeks ago uh, if you're if you're in church the three and using the three- year lectionary you would have read it about the 14th of November but it is the Hebrews 10 text beginning at verse 11. it says, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which they can never take away sins right so they that's what they did they offered and they couldn't fully take away sins they never did but when christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god and waiting for the from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So Christ is the great high priest in the order of not Levi or Zadok, but actually it ends up being in the order of Melchizedek as you go through and trace this to scripture. And he has offered himself As the sacrifice, so the high priest offers the sacrifice. Christ, the high priest, offers himself as a sacrifice to take away the sins of the entire world for all time, thus uniting all people to himself and to one another. And when Jesus rises from the dead, this whole order of priestliness and service completely changes. The people of God then are to offer their bodies as living sacrifices for one another, to give of themselves. But there is still a distinct office that's Christ's office. And it happens in in John 20. So in John 3, we get this, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? He sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But in John 20, when Jesus rises from the dead, he breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit as the father has sent me. So now I send you. Breathing on them the Holy Spirit, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, they are withheld. So the ministry of the great high priest continues as he breathes upon them the Spirit as Jesus was sent. But now he's ascending to the Father. And what does he do? He gives the Spirit to his disciples and says, okay, now go give out everything I've done. So there's a great distinction now, even in the pastoral office, we don't offer sacrifices. That's not what pastors do in terms of blood sacrifices to take away sins. No, our words have completely forever changed because we now are the giver outers of God's gifts of forgiveness in life. And how does he chose to have us give them out? Oh, well, word and sacrament in the stead by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, right? I stand here, my lips, but... This is Christ's office, and this is what Christ says to you: "I forgive you all your sins." So that, that the pastor is kind of the distributor of the gifts of the of the great high priest Jesus, and so this is this is a beautiful connection and vision and fulfillment of Ezekiel forty eight. Uh,
0: the th- I mean, as you're talking there about the the way that the priests are functioning here, and the some of the differences that you see in the priests' duties in Ezekiel versus what you read about in the books of Moses and the way that it would have worked during, you know, during the rest of the Old Testament. It's another one of those examples in this section where you know, Ezekiel, again, he's he's in that Old Testament world and he's seeing it in those terms, but there's there's those differences, sometimes ever so slight, sometimes a little bit bigger, that that give you this impression that you know that we're talking about that there's something else coming and someone else coming who is Jesus who will bring these things to fulfillment. Such that you know, by the time you get to Revelation and you you see the temple there, it's well, it is Jesus. He is the temple. There's no building because because he's the temple and he's the one who stands there as the lamb who was slain. He's that once and all, once for all, final sacrifice. I mean, so I mean, again, you know, just that that progression how and how Ezekiel, especially in this section, you know, has has a foot in both testaments. It, he's he's seeing it in Old Testament terms but he's seeing New Testament realities that are going to be fulfilled in Christ. And and one of those things that he sees, one of those people that he sees, is the prince. Now, we've encountered the prince before, and he's going to show up here in this text again. So we're going to keep reading a little bit farther here in Ezekiel 48. We're picking up now in verse 21. What remains on both sides of the holy portion and of the property of the city shall belong to the prince extending from, 20, from the 25,000 cubits of the holy portion to the east border and westward from the 25,000 cubits to the west border, parallel to the tribal portions, it shall belong to the prince. The holy portion with the sanctuary of the temple shall be in its midst. It shall be separate from the property of the Levites and the property of the city, which are in the midst of that which belongs to the prince. The portion of the prince shall lie between the territory of Judah and the territory of Benjamin. As for the rest of the tribes, from the east side to the west, Benjamin, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Benjamin from the east side to the west, Simeon, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Simeon from the east side to the west, Issachar, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Issachar from the east side to the west, Zebulun, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Zebulun from the east side to the west, Gad, one portion. And adjoining the territory of Gad to the south, the boundary shall run from Tamar to the waters of Meribach from there along the brook of Egypt to the great sea. This is the land that you shall allot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and these are their portions, declares the Lord God. That takes us through verse 29. Verses 23 through 29 are really the, the we've talked about that with verses one through seven. Again, we've worked our way all the way from the north down to the south. And again, in the middle, you've got this holy portion, and we've talked a little bit about that. Now, within that holy portion, next to that holy portion, you've got the land for the prince. So, Pastor Philippeck, remind us again about who is this prince.
1: Certainly, and since time is of the essence, I'll just point back to what my faithful brothers before me have done in this study. Back in chapter 34, back in chapter 37, we encountered the prince for the first time, and just by way of reminder and summary of all those discussions that had happened there— during that time on Sharper iron, then by way of reminder, I'll just simply say that the prince is spoken of in those sections as a new king and a new David, the good shepherd who would tend and feed the flock and through whom God would actually dwell with his people forever and grant them salvation and security in this new promised land. And then in chapters 40 through 48, the prince has also been given special privileges that in some way are reminiscent of the high priest, like only the prince may eat before Yahweh, before God himself. Only the prince provides the sacrifice, which is to be given out by the priests. So this is no earthly prince. This this prince's kingdom is not of this world. And this prince is a prince of peace. This is the one who can bring peace to the nations. This is the one who can sit before God without fear of death, because this prince has no sin. And what's more, He is at the center of everything. He's the glue that holds the north, ending in Judah, and the south, starting with Benjamin. He holds both together. And this prince and this holy territory in in which he dwells, he is the one who binds all tribes together as one. And so we do, just by that description, absolutely see, again, to just short-circuit the process because I know time is of the essence, we do see this. As a foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he is high and lifted up upon the cross, will draw all nations to himself, you know, John 12 and John 3 so on this one. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. And again, as you said, we have talked about the prince before, but you you see him again. And the fact that he's, he's holding the tribes together, he's right there in the middle, I think is, is another significant thing. The idea that you brought up from John 12, drawing all people to himself. We see that in the allotment of the land. Now, as you said, time is of the essence. We've only got a few verses left, but there's a lot here in these last verses. And although it may seem like you're going to tell me that this is a climax, I I do think so, uh, particularly with the name of the city that's coming. So we finish the text here in Ezekiel 48, starting again at verse 30. These shall be the exits of the city on the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. That is the rest of Ezekiel 48, verses 30 through 35. So, Pastor Philippek, we have about 10 minutes to talk about this section of the text. Three things stand out. There's the city, there's the gates, and then there's the name. Take us into the city and, and point
1: us to Christ. Certainly. So, I think we've done a good job of remembering that Christ is at the center, that, that this prince is at the center and he holds all things together. And the, the holy allotment, the, the temple, the dwelling place of God is in the center. So it's no surprise then that we get gates, access ways into Christ, and it's all around and surrounding this, right? We'll get to that in a minute, but let me start backwards a little bit with 30 and 35, because they both mention the city. But in Ezekiel 40, we haven't had the name of a city mentioned at all. It's always referred to as the city or the holy city. We've not had the name of a city occur in the last eight chapters of Ezekiel. And having recently ex- been exiled from Jerusalem, you might think that Jerusalem actually, and the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of that city that you read about in Nehemiah and the temple rebuilding that you read about in Esther, or Ezra, that's it, right? Nehemiah, Ezra, that's it. That's what we're talking about. That's the city. But Pastor Apple, Jerusalem, the city of God, has not actually been named here at all. It's only referred to as the holy city. Only here at the end do we get the name of the city. And it's not Yerushalayim. It's not Jerusalem. No, it's Yahweh Shema, which is a little play on that historic name, Jerusalem. So it's not the destroyed and then rebuilt earthly city. No, this is a brand new city, a brand new promised land, a new sort of Jerusalem, if you will. So a new name is given to this new city in the promised land. And the name is Yahweh Shema, which has both a reflection and a continuation of that old Jerusalem and temple, but with something new, something bigger, something greater, something more full that has happened when they when they um, are going to return to this holy city from babylonian exile and and what's new what's different well unlike when they actually return to ba- jerusalem from babylon um when all the tribes then still do remain scattered quite frankly and ununited and god's presence isn't found in the second jerusalem temple which is actually bu- built in the book of Ezra but here in this new city and this new holy uh, city that's much bigger and greater this new temple this new Jerusalem which is actually named uh, Yahweh Shema here Ezekiel's, Ezekiel's then not seeing a vision of what actually has occurred here on earth when the exiles rebuild this city no he is actually seeing a heavenly vision Ezekiel's temple was not made with hands not acquired by weapons, not by war. This vision is a vision of the end times, eschatological, when Christ returns, the end of all things. He gets a vision of eternity. And that's further confirmed when you see the same vision of Ezekiel actually appear in the book of Revelation, St. John's vision. Only Ezekiel had sort of a, as we talked about, and alluded to earlier on, a bare-bones vision of the end. But John sees it in all his glories. So listen to the description at the end in Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven, seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city. Of Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, like a clear, clear as crystal. It had a great wall, a high wall with 12 gates. Here we go, Ezekiel, 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Oh, there's Ezekiel's vision. On three east gates, on north, three gates, on south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And the walls of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And again in Revelation 3, John writes, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven, From my God, and I will write on him my new name. So Ezekiel's vision and John's vision are actually one and the same. They're about that great and glorious day when Jesus returns. And notice the fullness. It's not just the bare bones of the 12 tribes, but now we have added to it. Since Christ has come in the fullness of time to bear our sins and be our Savior, to be high and lifted up, to draw all people to Himself under the banner of His love and mercy on the cross. Now we have the 12 apostles. Now we have the 12 foundations. Now we have the Lamb. We have actually a much fuller picture in john that's reminiscent of ezekiel it has the gates and everything but now we have the fullness of everything in john so they're all about that great and glorious day when god dwells with his people face to face at long last as a groom dwells with his bride and a day when the 12 tribes receive a portion of that land that is they all have access to the presence of the living god where he dwells with man at long last where there is No suffering, no sorrow, no sin, no death. Every tear wiped away and death no more. No mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. The former of things all passing away. So Ezekiel sees this great and glorious day when at long last we are even better. Than we were in Eden. We are confirmed in our righteousness, in the righteousness of Christ, and we are before him day and night, and he shelters us with his presence, and he leads us to springs of living water that are his own life-giving source, that great life-giving spring, that great river in Eden that gives life to the people of God.
0: I really think, Pastor Philbeck, that with this description here in particular the name that's there the lord is there that and i love that you like the hebrew connection that you made the play on words that exist with the name of jerusalem how how fitting and i I think i mean with with this the lord is there the book of ezekiel as a whole and his ministry really you know comes full circle and, and this has been the point you know thinking back to chapter 1 of ezekiel in that opening vision that he has with the the glory of the lord on the the chariot driven by the angels and just the the strange vision that he has you know the question has has kind of always been where is the lord here we are in exile where is the lord and and ezekiel saw the glory of the lord actually leave the temple in jerusalem where's the lord he's seen the glory of the lord return to the temple here in this vision and you know there's that promise but but with this name for the city i mean it really cements the promise that the lord is there among his people that that even though their idolatry their sin had separated themselves from him they'd done that the lord will keep his promise to bring restoration and to give them this eternal security that exists, as you said, far beyond what happens in the return from exile, but, but happens fully in our Lord Jesus Christ and given totally, completely on the last day for all who are in him, Jew and Gentile alike, who share in that faith in, in Christ. And I, I mean, I think with that, you know, the Lord is there really serves as a, a perfect climax and conclusion to this book, giving hope to exiles waiting for that promised land. we got about a minute and a half, Pastor Philippic, for final thoughts, again, pointing us to Christ from this text in Ezekiel 48.
1: The hope of the exiles, the hope of Israel, the hope of all nations is not in the princes of this world. Trust not in princes and their war horses and their chariots. Trust not in in presidents and kingdoms. Trust in the prince of peace, whose kingdom is not of this world. Who draws all people to himself because he was high and lifted up. And now all who call upon his name, their sins are forgiven and they have access to God. He himself has offered himself as the sacrifice, the Lamb of Christ. And now we have access to the Father and our joy will be made complete in the sounding of the trumpet when we dwell with Christ in the new Jerusalem, when Yahweh Shema is in fact forever established and God dwells with his people. No more sin, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. This is Christ's promise. This is our Jesus. This is our hope. And he has spoken and he will do it.
0: Pastor Adam Philipek is pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 1 to 35. Pastor Philipek, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Tomorrow, we will be starting a new series here on Sharper Iron. We will be looking at epistle readings appointed for the season of Advent. So take a look in your hymnal, look at the lectionaries, look at those epistle readings that are appointed. And if you have any questions on those texts, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.